The scripture reading can be found on page five of your bulletin. And today's reading comes from 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 through chapter 2, verse 2. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light, and there is absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him, and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and are not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Sohi, for reading. I realize I didn't say my name. If I hadn't met you, my name's Eric. I'm the pastor here at Trinity. To begin this new year, we are in a new teaching series. It's called Liturgy for Life. A liturgy is a pattern or an order for a worship service. Now, that's the main way that we use that word. I am also using the word liturgy to describe the pattern, the order, and the rhythm of our daily lives because, we talked about this last week, at the root, our lives are structured and ordered and patterned around what we most value, what we think is most important, or in other words, what we worship. So, the question for churches and for individuals is not, do we have a liturgy? It's what is my liturgy? What is it built on and what it is founded in? So, the goal of this series is twofold for our church, for myself. One, to look at why we do what we do. It's all here in the bulletin. Uh, we have our order of service and we follow a similar pattern every single week. Why? Why do we do each of those parts? And the goal is that there would be, as we examine why from Scripture, that there would be fresh power and meaning to our Sunday liturgy, every single part of it. Secondly, the second goal, how what we do on Sundays can be a model to shape our daily liturgies for life. That we can look at this bulletin and go, well, this is a nice template for me. This is a helpful template for me to work into the daily rhythms and liturgies of my own personal life. And both of these goals, I think, are very, very important right now. One, people are asking, many of you might be asking, is Sunday worship really all that necessary and important? I can grab a great sermon online. I can listen to some great music online. 
And it doesn't even have to be in the context of a live-streamed worship service of a church community that I'm a part of. So, what do we say to that? Why be a part of a worshiping, gathered community week in and week out? There is so much good stuff out there. Great teaching, great music, etc. But why do we need to enact and walk through this liturgy week after week? And so, what I would hope is we would see that we need this liturgy. That's one of the main reasons we need to be here is because we need from the very beginning to the very end to experience this liturgy, to know God and to encounter him. Another thing that's happening is when so many things are constantly changing and shifting all around us, causing disruption to our daily lives with COVID and other things, what can we do to stay rooted and grounded? What can we do to maintain perspective and not just crumble (laughs) and be shaken by the uncertainty of it all? I would say and argue and will throughout this series that we need an intentional, personal, daily liturgy centered on Jesus Christ. Let me share an illustration. Many of you are athletes. Many of our young people are athletes. It could be water polo or swimming or running or baseball, basketball, whatever it might be. Can you imagine if one of your teammates who never is there for practice, he doesn't have any commitment to regular training or drills, and then they show up for the game. For some reason, the coach plays them, coach's favorite, whatever. They're in the game, and they do terrible. And they come back after the game, and they're talking to you, and they're like, man, I played terrible. I don't know what my problem is. What's going on? And you might say to them, Dude, you don't come to practice. Do you do any of these drills at home? No. Well, that's the problem. How do you expect to perform when it matters in the game when you're not practicing, when you're doing nothing to train yourself? You don't have a liturgy. You don't have a liturgy that forms you and shapes you into be an athlete. Well, the same thing is true of us as Christians We need liturgies to shape us into followers of Jesus Christ to become like him. So last week, we began the series with the call to worship. That's how we begin all of our services, why it's important to begin our services and our days and throughout our days, hearing God call us into worship. Today, we're going to look at confession and assurance. I realize this might be maybe the hardest part of our service for many of you to be engaged with, especially those of you who are unfamiliar with it as a part of the order of service of a church, or maybe if you've experienced this time, a time of confession in a church as being very dismal or rote or cold. What I want to do is look at this passage that we just read, 1 John, and explore two questions. Why do we need this every week? Why do we need confession and assurance? And then lastly, look at some thoughts on how that might look in our everyday lives. So first, confession. Why do we do it every week? We have a call to confession. We have a prayer of confession. We have silent confession. That's a lot. Why do we need to do it? It can seem like a downer, maybe to you. Maybe it feels like a time to be gloomy or self-deprecating or feel guilty. Is that why we do it? 
Many people struggle with this because their church experience is associated with guilt or accusation or judgment. That's what they associate church with. And then we come to this point in our service where we say, you are a sinner. And people would say, why do I want to be told that? Is this somehow about earning God's forgiveness? If we don't do it, he'll punish us. He won't bless us and our lives. It's no to all of those things. None of those reasons are why we do confession week after week. John tells us why. First, I have slides for each of these subpoints. We confess our sins whenever we truly recognize and acknowledge who God is. There is a biblical logic to our regular liturgy and order of worship that goes like this. When we recognize and acknowledge who God is in his holiness, in his glory, and in his greatness, which is what the call to worship is calling us to do, which what the songs of praises are calling us to do. When this happens, we recognize and acknowledge, verse 5, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Light. What does John mean by that? looks like here in the context that he means God is pure goodness, pure moral righteousness and holiness. God is pure goodness, pure righteousness and holiness and justice. So if that becomes just a little bit real to us, Evan already talked about this, if we glimpse that just a little bit, it will lead us to confession. That's what John is saying here. The logic is here. God is light. If we walk in the light and don't confess our sins, he says, the truth isn't in us. His word cannot be in us, i.e., we really haven't encountered God. Maybe we've just gotten in touch with our feelings. We felt inspiration. Maybe something in the service feels good to us. But John is saying, if there's no confession, you have to ask yourself, have you really encountered God who is pure light? Now, I've already talked about athletes. You might be a good athlete. You might be a great musician or a scholar. But if you're an awesome guitarist and Eric Clapton invites you to play with him, or if you are an incredible basketball player and LeBron says, hey, let's, let's shoot hoops together, man. Or if you sit next to the greatest scholar in your field in some kind of symposium or something, what will you feel? You'll feel excited for the opportunity, but you'll also feel this heightened awareness of every single weakness you have. You'll say, I thought I was great, but oh man, I'm playing with LeBron. Like I got to work on my handles and my shot. I don't know what I'm going to do in the presence of such greatness. How much more true is this when we encounter light and goodness itself in the presence of God? Now, I worded this point very carefully. It's, I didn't say we should, when we confess, we should confess our sins whenever we truly recognize and acknowledge God for who he is. Or we ought to. No, we confess our sins whenever it is a given. It will happen. And this is a pattern we see throughout Scripture. Anytime a person glimpses, if they get a big dose of the holiness and the glory and the greatness of God, 
Here is what happens. Here are a few examples. Exodus 34, Moses said, Lord, show me your glory, a bold prayer. And the Lord said, I can't show you my full glory. I can show you the backside of my glory. And God's glory passed before Moses as he was hidden in the cleft of the rock. And it says in Exodus 34, Moses immediately knelt low on the ground and worshiped and prayed, we are a stiff-necked people. Forgive our iniquity and sin and accept us as your own. Isaiah 6, the prophet Isaiah is given a glimpse of the holiness of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the first thing he says is, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. Confession. Job 42, Job had some very important questions to ask God about his life. Some legitimate questions, but when he encountered and glimpsed, And recognize and acknowledge who God is, what happened, Job 42. He said, I heard reports about you, God, but now my eyes have seen you. So I reject my words and I am sorry for them. I am dust and ashes. Luke 5, 8, when Peter encountered just a glimpse of this Jesus guy is not a regular person. He was fishing and Jesus said, put your net over there. A huge catch came in and Peter said, depart from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. You see the logic. You see the pattern. A glimpse of who God is. And we as human beings are driven to our knees in confession. It's the way it has to be. And if this is what happens whenever a person truly encounters God and worships him, then here's the application for what we do on Sundays. To not do this in our worship service would be like For me, like a malpractice, a disservice to all of you. It's like saying, we don't really expect to meet God here. We don't really expect to recognize and acknowledge God for who he is and his glory and his greatness. But if we do expect that, even a taste, even a glimpse, then we must allow time for us to confess. We'll have to. Second point. We confess our sins because it's the truth. Look at verses 6 and 8 with me. Light is an image of God's pure moral holiness. Light is also an image of how fellowship with God, encountering God, reveals what is true about us. It exposes deception. It brings things to light that we would rather keep hidden. Maybe some things that are hidden to us until the light of God's goodness reveals those things. So walking in darkness, here in 1 John, it doesn't mean not having any sin. Walking in darkness doesn't mean never sinning. It means living in a way where we don't see or admit our sin. John says that's lying and not practicing the truth. Look at verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. John is saying to not confess our sins then is to deceive ourselves. It's proof. Well, the truth isn't in us. It makes God a liar and is proof that his word has not gotten in us. It's just stayed on the surface. To confess our sins, then, is to step into the light, into the truth. It's proof that his word really has gotten into us. If you look at verse 8, it says, 
Now, verse 9, if we confess our sins. The word confess there is a simple word in the original language. It means to say the same thing. When we confess the faith we believe, we're confessing out loud. We're all saying the same thing, like in the Apostles' Creed. To confess our sins, then, means simply to say the same thing about our sin as God does. To acknowledge what's true. And we confess our sins because it's the truth. Now, we might say, well, God knows already. He doesn't need me to tell him what my sins are from the day and from the week. Why do I have to say that? Why do I have to confess? Why is it important? Well, consider this question. What is the most surefire relationship killer? You might think of a lot of different words there or, or, or ideas, but the surefire relationship killer, as I see it, is deceit or lying. That's the hardest thing to recover from in a relationship. If somebody's lied to you, if somebody has deceived you, it feels like it nullifies everything from that point on as you find out about that. It's like, is any of it true? Has it all been a lie? If two people, for example, meet on a dating website and everything they put down in their profile is a lie or a, a stretch, stretch of the truth, and they meet and they're both like trying to keep up appearances. Yeah, this is me. I really am into camping and they hate camping or whatever it might be. And they're talking about this. At some point, they have to confess the truth <laughs> or it's all just fake. It's not a relationship at all. You can't have a relationship without honesty. And this helps us understand, friends, why confessing our sins is so important. We don't confess our sins to avoid the consequences of our sin. That's not why. Like when we tell our kids, say you're sorry right now. Are you going to time out? I'm sorry. Were they really sorry or did they just not want to go to time out? We know we're training them, but that's not why we confess our sins. We don't confess our sins to get it off our chest so we can feel better. I'm sorry. Okay, I did it quick. Move on to the rest of life. No, we confess our sins, John is saying here, to restore fellowship with God, to exist in true relationship with him. We don't deceive, we don't hide, we bring it out, all out into the open. God, this is where I am. This is how I have treated you and your will. Many people are observing that the church is suffering from a credibility problem in our day and age. That some people are wondering, do we even believe what we say we believe? Confession, I believe, can restore this credibility. I'll say more about this in a moment. If we tell the truth, if people are going to believe the truth we say about God. But we're not going to tell God the truth about ourselves in confession. Then there is a great disconnect. What brings credibility is when we tell the truth to God about ourselves in light of the truth that we say we believe about who he is. Thirdly, I'll come back to that point in a moment. We confess our sins so that we have fellowship with one another. This is a surprising one. 
How does Sunday confession of sin create relationship and community? Well, look at verse 7. Again, that's what John says it does here. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Hmm. Think about it. A group of people together confessing their sin. Does it not cut right into the heart of what breaks fellowship between people? Pride, thinking we are above other people. Thinking that the problem is with other people, that we are superior, that the sins of this group or that group is the real issue, the real threat, and the real danger. All that is set aside in the time of confession when we say, we have sinned. We are an equal footing and an equal need of the grace of God. If we mean it, then there's no need anymore to hide or put our masks on. We can be real and tell the truth about ourselves to one another, and we can set aside pride. I don't have time to develop this further, but if you want to read what I think is the best description of this point that I've ever seen, it's in Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Life Together. Last chapter, I actually brought some giveaway books. If you want to read that chapter, I'll give you one of those books. So come see me afterward. We confess our sins because when we recognize and acknowledge who God is, it happens. It has to happen. So we make time for it to happen in the service. Secondly, we confess our sins because it's truth. And truth is what builds and restores relationship. And thirdly, we confess our sins so that we can have genuine and true non-mask fellowship with one another in the grace of the gospel. I believe one of the most important things for the church to do right now there's a lot of people saying we are in a crisis as the church because of all the challenges and all the division and all the, the sharp disagreement that exists even within the body of Christ and the credibility problem we have. I believe that genuine corporate confession and repentance may be the most important thing we can do or start with. So much of the energy in our culture by non-Christians, those who don't believe, and, and Christians, us. So much of our energy is spent on pointing out the flaws and the dangers and the evils and the sins of the other side, whatever other side you think is the other side. And what can happen there is the church becomes guilty of what I will call selective repentance or selective confession, partially confessing, not genuinely confessing, all of what the Bible calls sin, all of the ways that we fail to obey God and ignore what he says. We need comprehensive confession, everything. Let me get specific here and ruffle some feathers, maybe, maybe not. We'll see. If we confess, for example, lingering prejudice and racism in our hearts, we are not giving ground to progressivism. We are confessing something that the Bible calls sin. If we confess sins of injustice and iniquity that we are complicit in with regard to power and money, we are not giving a point to the social Marxists. We are confessing what the Bible calls sin. If we confess our sins of lust and sexual immorality, we are not giving a point to the conservatives. We are 
confessing what the Bible calls sin, if we confess our lack of personal responsibility for our issues and not just simply take the stance of victims, we are not scoring a point for the conservatives. We are confessing what the Bible calls sin. We need comprehensive confession. What does the world need most right now? Maybe it is this. Maybe it is to see a group of people who walk in the full light of who God is and who let it shine on our entire lives as a community, the whole truth of what the Bible says, and are the first to confess our sins when they are revealed. If we're left alone on ourselves, by ourselves, we will be selective. There's no way around it. We'll confess the things that concern us that we see in the Bible. We'll confess the things we, we think are important to God, and we will have blind spots, places in God's Word we ignore. Maybe we don't even know about those things. And often, the prayers we use will just be centered on those things if we confess our sins. That's why on Sundays, we do the best we can based on the text of Scripture for the day to let that be the guide of our confession and our repentance so we can be as comprehensive as we can. And Jesus said, you cannot see the speck in your brother or sister's eye as long as there is the log stuck in your own. That's confession. We have to move on to assurance because confession is just one side of a two-sided coin. Every time our liturgy includes confession, we always, always follow with assurance. Why? Three reasons here from the text. Number one, we need assurance because confession without assurance is a misrepresentation of the gospel. If we were to do that, we would be misrepresenting and distorting Jesus Christ. To confess our sins only and to move on without assurance, is really to lose the gospel. They must go together. Assurance without confession, as we just looked at, that's self-deceit. If we just say, everything's fine, I'm okay, I'm okay, everything's good, without confession, we are living in self-deceit. But confession without assurance is self-condemnation. It's not living in the truth of verse 9. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Can we just look at that verse together? This is an astounding verse if we really understand it. It's hard to believe it's really true what it's saying. It says, not that God would be unloving not to forgive you. It doesn't say God would be unmerciful or God would be ungracious not to forgive when you confess. No, it says God would be unfaithful and unrighteous not to forgive and cleanse us. Why? It's because Jesus has already taken the judgment, the condemnation our sins deserve. Look at verse 2 of chapter 2. It says, He himself is our atoning sacrifice for our sin. So God cannot and will not condemn you or punish you or judge you for the sins Jesus has already died for. We just need to let that sink in. It would make God false. 
It would make God unjust if he were to do that. So how can we know we are forgiven when we confess? How can we be assured that it's true? Because we don't always feel it. We still feel like, oh, there's got to be something more I can do. But it's not if we come saying, I'll do better next time, God. I can do better. It's not based on how bad or remorseful we feel when we confess. It's not if we come with a plan for making up for it and doing better next time to be more spiritual, to defeat that sin, to get accountability. None of that is what will give us assurance. It's only to verse 2. He himself is our atoning sacrifice for our sins. John is saying Jesus is more than sufficient for all of your sins. If you think that's too much, he says, he's sufficient for the sins of the entire world. His atoning sacrifice is sufficient. Some of you have a tendency to assume your assurance without confession. And to you, I would say, if you haven't been called out by God recently and truly confessed in the words of Psalm 51.4, against you and you only have I sinned, God. If, God. if the light of God hasn't broken through for you, then beware. That's a sign your confession is really about for you. It's not for God. But others of you have a tendency to get stuck in confession without assurance. No matter what you do, you feel like, I'm such a horrible person. I'm a horrible Christian. I'm not growing. When will I ever get better? What's wrong with me? And to confess your sins sinks you into a pit. And you are stuck there and you feel like, I'm just here with my sins and am I ever going to get better? Do you know what atoning sacrifice means, friends, if that's you? It means that Jesus went into the pit. Jesus took that so you don't have to. Healthy Christian growth is not staying longer in repentance, in groveling, in piling guilt and horrible feelings upon yourselves. That is not healthy Christian growth. Instead, it is going deeper down into repentance, seeing our sin for what it is, and springing back up to faith in Jesus Christ in full assurance that you are forgiven, loved, accepted, and delighted in because of what he has done for you. I had a mentor who would say, this is the dynamic of the Christian life. You go down the slope of repentance, you go up the slope of faith. And when he taught us that, it's so important for me to understand this. He said, it's almost like there's, you know, there's like a trampoline at the bottom. You go down, you don't stay down. You don't stay down in your sins and in the guilt and the shame. You spring back up in the mercy and the love of Jesus Christ. If you refuse to truly confess your sins, you know, that's somebody saying, I don't need a Savior because I don't have sin. You're saying, I don't need a Savior. I'll be my own. But the one who refuses to receive assurance and believe in assurance is saying the same thing. I don't need a Savior. I have to do it myself. I have to get myself out of the pit and deal with my guilt. Make up for the bad and do better. And the gospel, friends, is no. 
we are sinners and we have a savior. And what he's done is sufficient for all of our sin. Second point. This is related. We need assurance of forgiveness and pardon because we can't give it to ourselves. We can try, but it doesn't work. In our culture, we have a way that we talk about this, some lingo that I think is helpful called self-talk. We realize, okay, I got self-talk going on inside of my mind. And it goes like this. Sometimes something is, is saying in us, like, you are the worst. You're fake. Nobody really likes you. If they knew who you were, they wouldn't like you at all. You don't measure up. You're not growing. You're not a good person. And then there's another part of us that says to that voice, stop. <laughs> no, I'm not the worst. You know, I'm, I'm not the greatest, but I'm not the worst. I'm acceptable. I'm lovable. I'm okay. I'm worthy. I'm not that bad. I do some good things. And back and forth, you know, it goes in that self-talk. It's important and helpful to realize this and get a handle on this. But what's, what's happening here is self versus self. And when self is battling the self, who gets to cast the tying vote? How does, it, how does it ever end? It's just based on how we feel. How do we get out of that spiral? And the Bible says this is where Satan, who works to drive us further into despair, into despair, will accuse us. So we, in our self-talk, we're trying to be our own advocate, and yet we're also our own accuser. How do we get out of that? It's in 1 John 2, 1. If anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. An advocate is someone who speaks for you, stands with you, and convinces you. If you stand with me, I'm for you. I will speak with, with you and to you the truth. And this is what it means for us to hear the advocating, believe in the advocating work of Jesus Christ. That when we confess, we are assured of forgiveness because of his righteousness. It means when we are forgiven, God does not hold your sins against you ever. Your sin does not come between you and him. It's not there to him. He doesn't see you as a sinner. He sees you in light of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He doesn't treat you or relate to you in reference to your sin. He treats you only with love, grace, and kindness and with the same affection that he has for his only son. This is liberating and this is freeing when we believe it. This is why we read on Sundays directly from the assurances of Scripture. It is not me saying it, your sins are forgiven, or whoever is presiding up here. It is God himself telling us and giving us the assurance. He's breaking the tie in our hearts. He's saying to us, there's a voice greater than all your self-talk. It's my voice. You are forgiven and cleansed from all unrighteousness. Third, we receive assurance so that we may not sin. Look at verse 2, or chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing you these things, so that you may not sin. And you say, wait a minute, it seems like he's saying, are you a sinner? Get used to it. That's how it's going to be. Stop pretending that you're not. So confess, be forgiven, and cleansed. And we might say, how does that help us not to sin? It seems like it's giving everybody a free pass. 
hey, if you sin, it's okay. Just confess and be forgiven. The answer to this is why we call this part of our service renewal. Because the liturgy and the rhythm of confession and assurance contains the power for change and transformation. When we say, honestly from the heart, I am a bigger sinner than I ever thought. And we are met in that honest confession with the assurance, well, Jesus is a bigger Savior than you ever dreamed. If we see and confess sin for what it is, that it's what breaks fellowship between us and God and us and other people, it leaves us in the dark alone, in lies. And we see that Jesus took what our sins deserve so that what he deserves, we have. A 100% unbreakable assurance that God the Father loves us, approves of us, delights in us, and is committed to our good and our ultimate joy. If that's what we're left with in confession, that is the power to set us free from sin. Why would we go back to sin if it separates us from God and his love and his delight and his perfect will for us? Let me bring it all together on Sundays. It doesn't say here in 1 John, here's what you do on Sundays when you gather together in worship. It doesn't come right out and say it. It's not speaking directly about a worship service, but what John is saying is that this is the regular rhythm of fellowship with God and fellowship with people. You come into the light of God's holiness and glory. In that light, we see our sin. We confess it. We see it for what it is, and we receive assurance that because of Jesus, nothing stands between us and the love of God. And from there, we walk and live in fellowship with God and others. So that's why we do it week after week. Final thoughts. I won't say a lot here about our everyday confession and assurance, but our Sunday confession is designed to give us the vocabulary, to give us the words to use in our confession, and to experience the freeing power of the assurance that our sins are forgiven and we are clean. And so we'd make this a part of our liturgy for life. There's a quote from Cornelius Plantiga I came across this week. He said, recalling and confessing our sin is like taking out the garbage. Once is not enough. If you have garbage sitting in your kitchen and it's rotting and smelling, you don't say, yeah, I did that yesterday. You take it out. We don't only sin on Saturdays. They need to confess on Sundays. We are meant to carry this around with us, the rhythm and the pattern of confession and assurance every day to daily step into the light. Many ways this can look. It can be a part of your ACTS, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication pattern of reading scripture. There are prayers you can use. There is a prayer of, an, of examine that is traditionally used at the end of the day to allow the light of God and his word to shed its light on, on the, the, the events of the day and to confess those sins. I just want to close with this. Uh, this week, as we were reading our CBR, our daily uh, Bible reading plan as a church, there's a story that brings the power of this home, I think, for Sundays and for every day. Luke 7, there's a story of Jesus. He was invited to eat a meal 
at a Pharisee's house, one of the religious leaders. And while they were sitting down and eating, and we just want to imagine this and picture this, he's in kind of an official meal. Hospitality is very important. Religious leader, official kind of a thing going on. And a woman comes in and busts in, and she, we are told, is weeping at Jesus' feet. She brings an alabaster a jar of perfume, she breaks it. She anoints his feet and she's weeping and taking her hair and wiping the feet of Jesus. So you just go, if you were there, what would you think? We're told what the religious leader thought. He said, if this man were a prophet, a man of God, he would know who this is. She is a sinner. And Jesus is able to discern his thoughts. And he says, Simon, I have something to tell you a little bit of a story. There was a creditor. Two people owed him money. One, 500 days worth of salary. Another, 50 days worth of salary. And he says, he forgave them both. Which one do you think loved him more? The one who was forgiven more. And Jesus says, do you see what's happening here? You, since the time I came into your home, have been cold and judgmental. You didn't even perform the acts of hospitality for me. And this woman has poured herself out in brokenness at my feet. You're looking down on others, so concerned with the mask you're wearing. But look at her. She's free from what others think, and she's full of love. Why? The one who is forgiven little loves little. How do you think this woman's life changed from that day forward? We're not told her story, but how do you think the rest of her day went? That woman. Jesus looked at her. She was known for some type of sin in the community. She was ostracized and cast out. And Jesus looked at her and said, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What kind of day do you think she had? For whatever the sin was she was known for, do you think she was like, okay, free pass, go back to that life? What do you think her heart was full of when she thought of God? What do you think her heart was full of when she thought of who she was before a holy and righteous God? She had been broken at the feet of Jesus and heard him say to her, your sins are forgiven. And it changed everything. Let's pray and ask the Lord to do that in our own hearts. Would you pray with me? Father, you are light. We can barely grasp what that means. Day in and day out and even on Sundays, we long to glimpse that and experience that, yet we know when we do, we might be undone. You will reveal and expose things about us that are true. We run from that. We hide from that. We want to minimize and excuse and defend ourselves, but I pray you would help us lay all that aside week after week, day after day, in order that we might live in true and living fellowship with you and know deep down in our soul with all assurance that because of Jesus, we are loved. And may that kind of love overflow into our lives to other people who are broken, needy, 
and sinful just like us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.